What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is artist, remixer, all-around knob-twirler musician, Stephen Wilson. Stephen? Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Okay, you just put out a new album, Future Bites. What motivates you to make new music today? Well, you know, I'm, I'm sort of one of those people that years and years and years and years and years ago, when I was a, t- when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, fell in love with the idea that I could make records. And for me, it was a magical thing and a gift to be able to do that professionally. So I've made it my business to make rather a lot of them. Um, Actually, I'm slowing down a bit. There was three years between this album and the preceding one, which is almost unheard of for me. But as an excuse, I did get married and and, uh, uh, acquire a family in the meantime. So that kind of slowed me down a little bit. Yeah. No, I mean, I've I've just, um, you know, I've just been in love with the idea of making records ever since I can remember, even before I knew what things like producer, lyrics, you know, even what those words I was reading on record sleeves, even before I knew what they meant, I kind of subconsciously and intuitively knew that's what I was going to end up doing. And that's what I've dedicated my life to doing. Okay. You have this new album, The Future Bites. What was the inspiration for that? So I wrote it a couple of years ago, and and really the idea of the future bites. There's a couple of themes going on on the record. One, I guess the the dominant theme is about how sense of self and identity have changed in the internet era. So the idea that we now, well, let's just say that before the internet, we used to look out as a species. We used to look out at the stars. We used to look out at the world with incredible curiosity. Now we spend most of our time gazing at a little screen to see how many likes, how many comments, how many views, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea that now we see ourselves pretty much reflected back in the mirror of social media and how that has affected us 
as a species, how that has affected the course of human evolution, because I really believe it has, and quite severely. So the album deals with a lot of the kind of issues spinning off from that new era, I guess, of what I call the new era of narcissism. Okay, you said you wrote it a couple of years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was the interim about? Well, right here in the UK, about 2018, we were going through this hideous thing called Brexit. In fact, we're still going through it. It was a very, very depressing time. Um, I was kind of, you know, seeing on social media the increasing polarization of people, you know, the belligerent, what I call the politics of hate, really coming to the fore. That that whole thing brought out some of the worst aspects of humanity, it seemed to me. And we were also in the middle of the Trump administration, so ditto to that, really. So I, you know, I... I think I felt for the first time in my life I wasn't really look, looking forward to the, the future particularly. And of course, lo and behold, just as I finished the album, along comes the pandemic and it's become even more, sadly and ironically, it's become even more relevant and even more topical. Okay, just to be clear, you wrote it. Was there an interim between writing it and recording it, or you just held the album back because of the pandemic? Yeah, so the album was finished last January. So it just before the the pandemic came along, it was being scheduled for release, and then of course, as soon as it kicked in, we pulled it, and uh, and now it's just come out. Okay, but in your particular case, because most people who hold albums back, it's primarily because they want to associate the release with a tour. You have a very dedicated fan base. Do you find that the tour? maximizes consumption or you sell more tickets if there's everything happening at the same time? What's the thinking there? Yeah, for sure. Ideally, right now, I would be on tour. I would be doing record store signings. I'd be doing TV appearances, whatever I can do to to kind of bolster up the, you know, the record, but I can't do any of that. So ironically, I'm left with the only thing I can do to promote this record is social media and making videos and posting that sort of stuff online. So I can reach my fan base that way. Um, I think the idea of originally of, of postponing the album wasn't necessarily to do with touring. It was more to do with, I wasn't sure when the pandemic first kicked in or when lockdown first kicked in, I wasn't sure if it was the right time to release a record that was essentially about the dystopian world that we lived in. And I'm still not sure. The, the truth is I'm still not sure, but I didn't want to hang on to it any longer. I felt like a year was already more than enough, you know, to hold it back. Well, there, historically, there have been great dystopian records. Uh, do you feel that you're a pioneer of the 21st century or is anybody else carrying the flag with you? I don't know. I think there's lots of people, certainly there's going to be lots of people writing songs about, you know, what the human race is going through right now. I've no, I've no doubt there already are many records that have been released in the last few months that deal with that. The difference for me, I suppose, is I have a commitment and a dedication to the idea of the album as a continuum, as a journey, as a kind of analogous with a film or a short story. I love that. I love people, I love the idea of people sitting down and listening to a record in the, way, in the same way they would engage with a movie from beginning to end. You wouldn't just watch a scene of a movie in the middle, would you? You'd watch it from beginning to end. So that kind of art of listening, which I think is definitely being, well, has been and is continuing to be compromised and eroded by what I call playlist culture, um, 
is, you know, I, I do find myself kind of unusual in that respect. I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I don't think there are many of us left committed to that idea of the album as a continuum. And that comes from from way, way, way back when I used to li- listen to my dad, you know, playing Dark Side of the Moon and my mum playing the classic Donna Summer, Giorgio Moroder records. Which I'm sure if you know, many of those have like these sidelong, what I would call disco symphonies. So I was just completely in love with the idea that you that music didn't have to be about the three-minute pop form. It could be something much more sophisticated, uh, much more in, in the long form in that sense. So I'm still committed to that idea. I find it hard to let go of that, even though I know it's kind of an old-fashioned idea in the age of Spotify streaming and, and playlist culture. But I have, a, as you say, I have a very dedicated fan base, so I know there is still people out there that feel that way too. Okay. Define what you mean by playlist culture. Well, so these days, people aren't interested in albums. They're interested in songs. Okay. So rather than somebody actually listening to a song they really like, hearing a song they really like on the radio or, you know, on YouTube or whatever it is and saying, wow, I love that song. I want to find out what else that artist has done and listen to that too. People don't tend to do, and obviously I'm generalizing here, but I think a lot of people now, they don't have that mentality. Uh, it's the song. That's all they're interested in. They don't care what the other, what the, the rest of the album is like. They're not interested in, in what else that artist might have done. And that's completely anathema to me because I grew up being fascinated by the cult of personality. So I would get into an artist and immediately I fell in love with a song. I wanted to hear the record. Not only did I want to hear the record, I wanted to hear all the other records in that artist's catalogue. I wanted to understand the trajectory of that artist's career. The bad stuff, the good stuff, the amazing stuff, the not so good stuff, the fails. I was fascinated with all of that. And I don't think that's true of a lot of perhaps the younger generation of listeners now. They just like a song. They're not interested in finding out much more about the artist. They're not interested in hearing the album. They're not inter- certainly not interested in hearing, you know, in being, you know, familiarizing themselves with the whole catalog of a particular artist. That's what I mean by playlist culture. Okay. What do you view the general landscape of music today being the way I always say, you know, I grew up in the era of 60s and 70s where music drove the culture. There was faltering with corporate rock and disco at the end of 79. There was another injection as a result of MTV. Music is still very influential. Yeah. But I don't want to answer the question for you, but today's things have changed. How do you view the landscape of music today? Are you optimistic, pessimistic Do things need to change? Will there be an evolution? Yeah, all of the above, really. I mean, you know, I think it's true to say there's more music coming into the world than at any other time in history right now. It's crazy. I mean, the amount of songs, I think Spotify gets something like 10,000 new songs added every day or something crazy or week. I forget what it is anyway. It's a lot anyway. There's a lot of new music being made. And a part of that, of course, is the democratization of making music by the fact now that it's very easy for anyone to buy a cheap piece of software, put it on their laptop, and they can make music at a reasonably high quality, you know. Um, Plugins, virtual instruments, the sort of preset culture enables people to sound like their favorite artists almost instantly just by pressing the right button or choosing the right option on their on their on their computer laptop on their laptop. So I think that's good that people are able to make music. Unfortunately, 
Um, the downside of that is that most of that music that's being made is extraordinarily generic. And that also is a problem and a symptom of the preset culture. When it's very easy to sound like everyone else, that's what happens. Everyone does sound like everyone else. So you don't have those kind of, um, you don't have that kind of situation you had perhaps in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, even the 90s, where people had to find their own tone, their own sound, their own personality, because it wasn't easy to sound like anybody else. Um, so I think that's that's the downside of, of the sort of ease of accessibility of now making music is that everyone pretty much sounds the same as everyone else. I'm, you know, but on the other hand, I'm, I'm kind of talking mainly about rock music here. And I, and I acknowledge the fact that I come from the tradition of, of rock and classic rock music. That's what I grew up with. But there is a new generation uh, of music, which does sound much more fresh and is much more contemporary and is much more, um, innovative, which has come out of electronic and urban music in the 21st century. And I've been immersing myself a little bit more in that world. I don't like it all, but I'm fascinated by it because a lot of the people that make it are kind of doing things that rock musicians don't do. They, it's kind of like they don't know what they don't know. They don't know the rules. They're not kind of burdened with that kind of legacy of the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd the way I am and a lot of my musicians of my generation are. They're not burdened by that and they're doing some extraordinary things. So I do feel, uh, you know, um, that there is some really interesting music going on. I just don't feel it's coming from the, the, you know, the kind of area that I came from, the classic rock background. It's, there's nothing coming from that background that, that kind of interests me these days. What are the rules that these young people are breaking because they don't have the history that is burdening them? Well, one of them, for example, is in, just in terms of structure. They have no interest. I'm talking about, you know, People like Kanye West, Billie Eilish, Kendrick Lamar, those kind of guys, they're, they're the big names that, you know, you, you might pick out, pick out of the current scene. But there's a lot of other people doing it too. If you listen to the music those guys make, there's no adherence to anything what you might call a conventional song structure. And that fascinates me because, of course, I've grown up with all of those legacy artists, understanding the, the whole notion of intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus, you know, the classic kind of Tim Pan Alley structure that, a, that a, apparently a great pop song has, although, of course, there's been exceptions to that. But these guys don't, they don't kind of seem to care about that at all. And I like that because it makes the music unfold in more unpredictable ways. And in a way, that reminds me, that's like going back to what, you know, what I was talking about at the beginning, this idea that albums could take you on a journey. And part of the, the appeal of that was you didn't know what was coming next. You didn't know what was coming next on a concept album. You didn't know what was coming next if a, if a song was 10 minutes long. Um, so that adherence to classic pop song structures seems to be disappearing. And I, I kind of, I kind of like that. I, I kind of applaud that, that, that interests me certainly. Okay. You know, there's been a lot of documentation that you have to put the hook up close so that people don't skip the song. Mm. Is that something you think about when you're making new music? No, I don't. I, I you know, the only thing I think about when I'm making new music is, just getting myself excited about it. That's all I think about. And I've, I've had this question come up in, you know, various different forms. Do you think about your fans when you're making music? And I really don't. And it's an incredibly selfish way to go about your career, but I believe that's what an artist is, uh, someone who's essentially very selfish. 
You know, people talk about the music industry as if it's one thing. And of course, it's never really been one thing. It's always been at least two things. It's been the entertainment industry and the music industry. And there's been a crossover, of course there has in certain, in, in, in the case of certain artists. But generally speaking, I believe art is something that is made by people who have this kind of vocation to do something which comes from their very being and they have to be true to themselves. And that's where we get to these words like integrity, you know. And then there's the other side of the business, which is, you know, the reality TV side of the business and the very kind of contrived modern pop side of the business, making songs that will fit a particular demographic fit on daytime radio that basically look at what their audience want and try to give it to them. Or worse, look at what radio producers want and streaming services want and try to give that to them. I'm actually incapable of doing that. And I think any, I think anyone that has integrity and considers himself to be an artist would also be largely incapable of doing that too. Because there's something about creation and being an artist and being a musician, I think that, that you means you have to kind of do what you do in a vacuum. So you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that whole thing about, you know, modern pop music being almost 100% about the, the lead vocal now. No intro, no solos, no characters at the backing track at all, just all about the lead vocal. And that does sadden me a bit because, you know, obviously I grew up in listening to music where the music was often as important, if not more important, than the top line vocal melody. And what do you think about the overuse of the 808 drum sound and the lack of melody in so much of today's current music? It's interesting, isn't it, how, how rhythm has become so fundamentally important, but more important than melody in, in modern pop. That's something, obviously, I don't particularly like. I mean, my album is still incredibly melodic, and I work very hard to make it, um, you know, very strong uh, melodically, as well as being hopefully sophistication and having all the other stuff going on too. But you're right. You listen to modern pop and it seems that often the hooks are kind of the things that my kids would chant in the playground. That's about the level uh, of banality that a lot of the hooks have. Almost like, you know, playground chants. But it seems to work for them. And then the music is, as you say, is this kind of it's all about the rhythm and it's all about the bass. There's not a lot of what you might call harmonic movement in in modern pop music. With you know, again, with some exceptions. Taylor Swift writes great melodies, for example, great, great harmonic shifts in her music. But a lot a lot of the modern urban R and B artists now are just basically creating a rhythm track and then playground chants over the top, it seems to me. Okay, you're blowing my mind. I have seen Porcupine Tree, granted that's, you know, 17 or 18 years ago, and I certainly have followed your career, and I see your picture associated with different certain works that you've done. You always seem so serious. I'm talking to you now. Not only can you talk fluidly, you're so erudite. Where the hell did all this come from? Um, well, I'm very, you know, I'm very, I'm a student of music. I, I've always been a, a nerd. Um, and I've always been very passionate about music and the history of music. 
And I've talked a lot about it, Bob, over the years. You know, I mean, I even have my own podcast. I don't know if you know, I have my own podcast where I just basically argue with my friend about about albums. We, it's called The Album Years, and we, we pick a year and we basically just argue about what our favourite records are. So I've had a bit of practice at this. Um, well, uh, it's, talking, it, you know, yeah. it's not only being able to talk fluidly, you know, there's an ability to analyse in a society where analysis is tertiary if it's there at all. Let's go back to the beginning. So where did you grow up? I grew up just outside of Hamel, uh, just outside of London, a place called Hamel Hempstead. Okay, and what did your parents do for a living? So my parents was an electronic engineer, and my mother worked in in the local bank. So there was no there were before you asked the question, there was no sort of history of music in my family. How many kids in the family? So I have one brother who's a couple of years younger than me, who again has nothing to do nothing to do with music. Uh, he has a proper job, <laughs> um, but I I think. My parents, um, as I kind of alluded to earlier, my parents were certainly responsible for me falling in love with music because they kind of brainwashed me. You know, when I was too young to even understand, in a good way, I mean, when I was too young to even understand what I was hearing, they were playing great records and I would hear them on repeat, you know, the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever, Abba's Greatest Hits, Dark Side of the Moon, Tubular Bells, you know, Frank Sinatra these great records and I was brainwashed and still I feel like those records I heard as a kid when my parents played them are still very much the foundation of my of my musical DNA but ever since then I've ne- I think partly also because of my parents and the kind of eclecticism of what they listened to I've never really recognized this idea of genre and I know people associate with me with with a genre a particular one it's never one I describe myself as being a part of. I don't describe myself as being generic in any way. I have no interest in being generic. And I've always been very much a fan of that idea of listening, you know, across genres, being curious about everything that's out there. And I think, again, that was because of the music my, my parents listened to. And how much formal education have you had? I left school at 18. I did I did my, what in England was my O-levels and then my A-levels. I didn't go to university because I already knew what I wanted to do. Um, much to my parents' dismay, I, I kind of was set already on exactly what I wanted to do, I would say probably from the age of about 13 or 14. And did you go to regular public school? You know, the, the, these words had different yes. meaning in the UK, but you did not go to a private elite school. No, I went to a, a very regular grammar school. In fact, it was a sports. Co- it was called a sports college, which is just a fancy way of saying that they the emphasis in the syllabus was more on sport than it was on the arts. So I had everything stacked against me in that respect. I, I didn't really have any proper music education, even at school. So everything was kind of self-taught, but it was all from listening, just being curious and listening to as much music as I could get my hands on. Okay, so you were listening. At what point did you start playing? I think almost as soon as as soon as I realised that I was in love with this notion of of making records. I mean, just the just that whole thing of being able to hold something in my hand and say that I did it. That was my ambition, you know, just to hold a record in my hand. And we're talking about good old fashioned vinyl records here. To be able to hold one of those things in my hand and say this is my record. That was my that was my dream and ambition from twelve, thirteen. So I. My parents did send me to to guitar and piano lessons, and I hated it because I wasn't interested in being 
Um, I wasn't interested in learning repertoire. I still, to this day, I can't play anybody else's music. If you give me a guitar and say, play me something I know, I couldn't play anything. I just only play my music. And so my, my guitar teacher would, would be furious with me because he'd send me away with a bunch of homework to do to learn, I don't know, a Segovia piece or something. And I'd come back the next week and he'd say, have you learned the piece? And I'd say, no, but I've written my own. <laughs> and uh, and that, was the, that, that, that was basically what I was interested in right from the beginning, just being able to create and be, my dad being an electronic engineer, he built me stuff, you know, that, that I had no right to have access to when I was a kid, you know, like a little multi-track cassette recorder, which meant I could start experimenting with overdubbing and sound on sound from a very, very early age. And, you know, and I have to say, I was never interested in being uh, a singer, a guitar player. What I was interested in was making records. I didn't realize it at the time, but what I'd kind of fallen in love with was the idea of being the producer stroke auteur, you know. I remember having ELO records early on and looking, Jeff Lynn, this guy does everything. That's what I want to do. He writes the songs, he produces, he plays guitar, he sings. I'm going to be that guy. So those, those were the kind of uh, inspirations to me, those kind of people like Jeff Lynn. Now, were you a lone ranger or did you have friends who you talked about this stuff with or helped you in your formative era? Yeah, I had a couple of buddies at school that we formed We formed our first bands together with um, and also had an interest in music. Um, I had a very, very good friend of mine who had a, an older brother that was about five years older than him. And actually, that's how I really became immersed in the world of early 70s conceptual rock music. Because all the music that was happening when I was at school, when I was at secondary school, uh, or high school, as you call it in the States, was, you know, post-punk, uh, sort of the early sort of new romantic stuff, electronic, early electronic stuff like Gary Newman and New Order. That was what the kids were listening to at school. But my best friend, Mark, had this older brother, Stuart, and he had this record collection that he kind of, he wasn't interested in anymore. So we just kind of borrowed records from his collection. And that's how I discovered things like Hawkwind, Camel, uh, you know, all that early 70s conceptual rock stuff. So that was another big kind of watershed moment, I think, in, in my childhood, because that's where I, I had access to to this this form of music that had only really happened, you know, 10 years before. But it was like, it might as well have been 100 years before. Because uh, we're talking about the 80s here. No one talked about music from the early 70s, at least in my in my particular area. No, as my you school. put it earlier, it was anathema. Prog yeah, rock, absolutely. et cetera, no. Right. But not only prog rock, everything, you know, all of the musical genres that had come out of the 70s, whether it was fusion music, you know, or the whole singer-songwriter tradition or progressive, or whatever it was, if it came from the 70s, no one listened to it, no one talked about it, no one name-checked it. So I was very lucky. I had this, this friend of mine with his big brother who had this amazing record collection. I mean, you know, it's stuff by bands like Aphrodite's Child, you know, which was quite obscure, you know, at the time. I uh, still is, I guess, you know, in a way. So... Um, um, that that was a really important factor, I think, as well in my in my youth. Yeah. Okay. The obvious question is: an American, you're 18, you leave school. What do you do for money? So I ended up being very poor for a while. 
uh, I did go and work for a computer company for a couple of years, but I got out of that as soon as I could. And for about the first 10 years of my career, when when I had Porcupine Tree and No Man, Porcupine Tree was still a solo project. No Man was a duo I had with another singer guy. And I did music for TV commercials. I basically got by by doing music for TV commercials. But I, but that was that was good. And I didn't mind that. You know why? Because it meant I didn't have to even entertain the idea of compromising the other stuff. I was making money and I could do the other stuff without having to think about, I've got to make this work for me financially. And it didn't. It was a disaster. You know, uh, Porcupine Tree lost money for years, no man likewise. And it didn't matter because I, ha- I had this kind of safety net of being able to do music um, for, for these TV things I was doing. Okay, how'd you get those gigs? Again, I was very lucky. I had a friend of mine who happened to be um, in an advertising agency who came to me one day and said, it was really funny, it would have been about 1993, and he came to me and said, we want, we're doing this commercial for Lego, and basically the production team want a pastiche of Metallica, Master of Puppets. And I said, yeah, I'll have a go. I can do that. And I did a really terrible, terrible version of Metallica thrash metal. But luckily, the production team were no wiser. They didn't really know what <laughs> they were talking about. So they kind of, it was really lame, but it kind of convinced them. And I, and I got my foot in the door. And, um, and, and so I started to get more and more work from agencies. And, and some of the stuff I did later on was, was genuinely quite good. So I got a pretty good name for myself. Generally speaking, musicians who are not household names are incredible networkers. So if you look at yourself, everybody's humble. Do you work the connections, or certainly back then, work on relationships, or really somehow you blundered through when things came your way? I think the latter, yeah. I, I, I'm, not, I'm certainly not very good at schmoozing and, and networking. Um, I think, you know, largely I felt most of my career, I felt very much out on a limb. Um, I've never really been part of a scene. I'm not sure if I would have wanted to have been part of a scene. I mean, it's kind of be, be careful what you wish for in a way. Um, but it's also been frustrating not being part of a scene because being part of a scene gives you a big leg up, you know. I feel like most of my career has been a little bit of a war of attrition, you know, uh, particularly with the, the genre I was associated with being, you know, persona non grata for most of the 90s and most of the first 10 years of this of this millennium too. Less so now. I think it's, you know, the kind of world of progressive rock, conceptual rock is a little bit more accepted now. Partly because I think the younger generation don't care about genre as much as my generation did, uh, which is another good thing about, about the way people engage with music these days. Um, but for years, it was a struggle to get press. It was a struggle to get radio play. Um, and, and I felt like I would have been better off perhaps being someone who was better at networking and associating with me part, with myself with part of a scene. But I think part of the reason I never did is because I loved I love the music too much. I love the whole romantic notion of making music too much to, 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 to kind of get into that mindset, the more cynical mindset I guess you maybe need to get into. I've been very lucky. The whole remixing thing has just fallen into my lap too. And I'm sure we're going to come on to talk. Yeah, yeah. let's save that because i got to go. So you do this podcast. Hmm. What years do you tend to cover? We, we're random. So, so basically the idea was... Um, I have a very good friend of mine, Tim Boness, who I've known for more than 30 years. And basically, whenever we get together, we just nerd off and argue about music. 
And at the beginning of lockdown, I was looking for some things to do, you know, creatively to fill the time that I suddenly had in my hand. And one of these ideas was let's do a podcast. And I said to Tim, why don't we just take what we do, you know, naturally on onto a podcast and see if people love it. And the idea is basically we pick a year at random and we then go and see what albums were released that year. And the first thing we do is we throw out all the ones that we consider to be canon. So we don't talk about Sergeant. If we do 1967, we don't talk about Sergeant Pepper. If we do 1973, we don't talk about Dark Side of the Moon. There is nothing left to say about these albums. Nothing. So we deliberately pick ones that we think maybe people haven't heard about. So I'll give you an example. We did 1980 and we talked about Van Morrison's Common One as our favourite album of that year, which isn't even an, an album that Van Morrison fans talk about very often. But for us, it's like one of the all-time classics and a beloved album. So that gives you a kind of example of how we go about it. We're trying to introduce people that listen to it, which a lot of them are my fans and Tim's fans, trying to introduce them perhaps to albums that are not part of the canon, but we think are just as good as those albums. Would you ever pick a year from the 21st century? We haven't yet. We haven't yet, but we are going to. We've only done about 12 episodes so far. We've, we've, I think we've been back as far as 67 and as far forward as 98. So we've been relatively focused, uh, you know, on the last 30 years or 30, 35 years of the 20th century at the moment. Let's jump into today's era. We mm. have Van Morrison, along ironically with Eric Clapton, making anti-lockdown songs as COVID mutates and, in, you know, basically invades the UK. How do you feel about that? And how do you feel about Brexit? Well, I mean, I think I, I think I mentioned to you earlier on that the Brexit for me was something extremely depressing because it brought out... It brought out those extremes in in viewpoint. It it made people ten times more belligerent, ten times more polarized. It didn't seem like there was any room for discussion or a grey area anymore. And that was really what the future bias became about, you know. And a lot of that, I do lay the blame a lot, a, a lot of that at social media. But it's unfair to do that because, of course, the technology itself is not to blame. It's about the way that, you know, the human beings engage with the technology. That's the problem. Um, how do I feel about Eric Clapton and, and, and Van Morrison writing anti what is it they're doing? They're kind of writing. Well, they're anti saying it's all a conspiracy. Songs. Anti, anti, they're not saying that, that COVID is a conspiracy, are they? They're not one of those people. They're no, that, they're basically no. saying, well, Van Morrison is verging into that territory, but he's basically saying, you, the lockdown is BS. You should open everything up. We should be able to tour. We should be able to go to restaurants, et cetera. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of pretty irresponsible. I mean, I think the thing about Van Morrison is if you really, really take a long look at him as a person, uh, you probably wouldn't want to listen to his music. And, and I think, you know, sometimes you just have to divorce the art from the artist, don't you? And, and possibly that's the case with him, yeah. Okay, let's go back to the remixing thing. So how mm. did it fall into your lap? So... I, in about 2002, I and my band Porcupine Tree signed to an American record label. We signed to Jason Flom's label Lava through Atlantic. And it was a big thing for us because it was the first time we'd signed directly to an American label. And we thought, you know, we thought, oh, great, we're going we're gonna to crack America. Um, and we didn't. 
obviously crack America, but we had a couple of- Okay, let's, let's stop there because I remember, you know, uh, trains I liked on the first Lava record. Why do you think you did not crack America? Because what we, li- listen, I, I don't want to blow my own trumpet and I hate, I hate to, uh, to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think what we were doing was just a little bit too ahead of the curve. Basically, what we were doing in 2002, which has been much imitated since, very flatteringly, but no one had done it at the time, was combining extremely heavy riffs with classic singer-songwriter, with textural ambient music, and a lot of sound design elements that you might associate with conceptual rock music. And I don't think anyone had really done that before. There was a lot of, you know, really crushingly great heavy rock records around at that time. But they didn't have the kind of layering and the sophistication in the production that we were that we were doing. And for whatever reason, it just it was the classic case of the record company couldn't figure out how to market. And I don't blame them. I'm not one of those people that lays the blame always at the you know, the feet of the record company. Uh, Andy Carper, was the guy who signed us, worked so hard to try and get it off the ground. But the point is that people just didn't really know what to do with us, didn't quite get it. It was like, well, they're kind of like a heavy Pink Floyd, aren't they? What do we do with that, you know? Um, and I think subsequently that sound became almost, uh, you know, a genre in its own right. And there's been lots of bands now have kind of imitated those early Porcupine Tree records. And, and uh, well, a couple of those bands would be. Well, there's, they're not massively successful bands, but there are, there are a lot of bands. There's a label over here called K-Scope Music, um, who basically that's the sound of that label. And they have some bands that do quite good business, not probably not in America, but the, you know, the, it, it became a kind of like a sound and a recipe and a combination that other, the other bands adopted. And, uh, and it's one of those interesting things that in absentia, the album you talked about that had trains on it, sold nothing when it came out. But it now sells, year in, year out, it sells 10,000 copies. Every year it sells 10,000 copies. Okay, this begs a question. Those two Lava albums, were you Mm. happy with them? Yeah, I love Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm really proud of them. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Okay, so how did you fall into the remixing? You made a deal with Lava. Right. So, so yeah, we, we've, uh, we've gone slightly off topic, haven't we? So basically, we did those albums. And one of the things that the record company came to us and said they wanted to do as part of the try and way to break us, they thought, okay, this band, they've got this kind of conceptual layered production thing going on. Let's hook them up with DTS and we'll do a 5.1 mix. And we'll hire Elliot Shiner, this legendary, legendary engineer, to do the 5.1 mix. So cut a long story short, that's what happened. I'd never heard music in 5.1. I was completely ignorant of it. I'd never heard it, but I said, look, I'm going to book a studio in London, send me over the mix, I want to hear it. I'm a control freak. You know, I'm not going to let somebody just mix the record, put it out without me listening to it. So I hired the studio in, in, uh, in London and Elliot sent the mix over and I went and listened to it and I hated it. I hated it. Not because he'd done a bad job. It sounded beautiful, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I, it wasn't the way I would have done it. And it wasn't, it didn't sound right to me. It didn't sound like us to me. Okay, very speci- very specifically, what was wrong? Do you know what, Bob? It's so long ago, I can't remember. I think I hated the way the drums sounded. There was too much reverb on the drums, or the guitars were too recessed, oh, okay. too polite. Wait, so it, lit- it literally had to do with the sound of the instruments as opposed to how they were d- uh, put in the varying uh, four speakers. Also, also this, also this, yeah, the balance and, and the distribution of this. You know, it wasn't, like I say, Elliot was a, you know, master. He'd done, he, he'd done what he was doing with, the, with his other acts. But it, for me, for whatever reason, it didn't feel right for us. So I said to the record label, I don't like this. I want to go over there and sit with him and just basically go through it, go through it with him and, and you know, sort of do it as a, as a sort of co, co-mixing job. And that's what happened. I went over there, I flew over there and I spent a week sitting there with him while he rather begrudgingly uh, remixed the whole album and we got something that we both were really happy with at the end of it anyway to cut a long story short while i was sitting there listening to it i was thinking i can do this uh this is fantastic i love this uh i'm gonna do all my records in there so i got back and i put myself a little uh, i put a little 5.1 system together in my in my own studio and from that point on i started to remix all the records i was working on in 5.1 and lo and behold three or four years later fear of a blank planet which is couple of porcupine tree albums down the line later gets a grammy nomination for best 5.1 mix wait 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 wait! how did you get that gig what do you mean what do you mean how did i get a black planet planet you did not work on no no no, not the public enemy album no this is fear of a blank planet this was a porcupine tree album this is a porcupine tree album that was kind of riffing off the public enemy title okay i guess i was unaware of it okay yeah yeah it was the so two albums after in absentia the porcupine tree album was called fear of a blank planet so it was kind of a riff on the fear of a black planet it was a, right. a riff on the public enemy thing anyway that album got a grammy nomination for the best 5.1 mix just out of the blue i mean and, and somebody rang me up one day and said do you know you've been nominated for a grammy for your for your mix of fear of blank planet anyway so to cut a lot another long story short my manager at that point started to put out some feelers and say i've got a guy he's just been nominated for 5.1 mix do you are, you are you interested in having him and one of the people that responded in a positive way was robert fripp and king crimson who i was a lifelong fan of anyway he wasn't completely sure but he was interested so i did a couple of tracks on spec for him he came up 
we played the tr- two tracks to him and by the end of the first track he was jumping up and down his chair and saying we're going to do the whole King Crimson catalog in 5.1 so I started with the King Crimson catalog it was very well received one door led to another then well, I got well, a little bit slower a little bit slower so what year was the King Crimson uh, remix this started this was 2009 this was the 40th anniversary of In the Court of the Crimson King oh okay now a couple of things most people would say 5.1 is a failed format, not so much as SACD, but it's really for a very small percentage of people who have uh, high-level home theaters. So I didn't. It does. The market appears to be small and dwindling. From being inside the beast, what do you see? Are you talking about at that time, or are you talking about right now? Because right now it's growing. Right now it's growing. But you're absolutely right. In 2009, it was dwindling. And part of the reason it was dwindling was because the record companies had given up putting out stuff on 5.1. Now, what actually happened was that they put enormous... In 2000, in the early 2000s, they put an enormous amount of money into getting stuff remixed into 5.1. They were paying like $100,000 to get pet sounds mixed into 5.1, you know, and $150,000 to get rumors mixed into 5.1. And then, when, and then we're surprised when they only sold 10,000 units and they didn't make their money back. Now, fast forward to 2007, 2008, there's not a lot of people putting out catalog in 5.1, but the people that are doing it are making no money from it. They're doing it as a labor of love. And there is a small, dedicated audience for 5.1 that have been starved of catalog since the record companies had spent so much money doing the early records that they'd basically completely pulled out. But I was a champion for it, and I started remixing King Crimson, and there weren't many other records coming out at 5.1, but the ones that were, were ravenously received by the people that listened to it. And there was still a category in the Grammys for multi-channel surround sound mixing. So it, it was actually you know relatively easy for me to get the nod, the nomination, because there wasn't a lot of competition. But people noticed things. People noticed things like Grammy nominations. So... I started with Crimson, and then I got invited to do Jethro Tull's Aqualung. For whoa, its whoa, 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 whoa. You're working with Fripp. You know, the first album, as a result of having Greg Lake, did pretty well commercially. Then it became more of a cult item. The obvious question is, was that a labor of love? Did you make any money? How many copies no. of these, how many copies of one of these albums would sell? Um, well, that's a difficult thing to quantify because the 40th anniversary editions were CD, DVDA combos. Ah. So, so that that's the trick. And that's another thing that's changed from those early years when record companies were doing surround mixes. They're very rarely now released as standalone. They are considered to be extra value content. And I'm sure we'll come on to this, but nowadays surround mixes are almost always added as a kind of extra to a box set or a, a deluxe edition. Um, but in those days, 2009, 2010, the Crimson 40th anniversary editions were put out as CD, DVDA combos, and they did extremely well. They did extremely well, partly because I think it was coincided with a time when bands like King Crimson were being completely rediscovered and reevaluated, particularly by mainstream media. And Robert will tell you that because he put out 30th anniversary editions of those albums around two, about 99, 2000, and they got no press and the little press they did get was quite derogatory. When the 40th anniversary editions came out, five-star reviews right across the board. It was extraordinary. 
It was absolutely, even for albums that had never been part of the, you know, the, the core favourites of that band, were getting the most extraordinary reviews. And that band started to really start to sell again. And of course, that led to him reforming King Crimson around that time too. Oh, okay, let's just talk. At that particular time, you said at first you did the 5.1 mixes at your home, and then when you were working with Fripp, did you also do them? And what kind of equipment were you using? And what was the studio experience as you went further into the project? So it was all done in the digital domain. Basically, what would happen is the multi-track tapes, I mean, this is true of pretty much every project I've done. The multi-track tapes get sent to a professional tape transfer facility where they bake the tapes and then they transfer them to high-resolution digital files. I get sent those files. So I get raw multi-track tapes, but as digitized files. So then part of it for me is just kind of detective work, seeing what's on the tapes, making sure everything's there, and then essentially recreating the stereo as closely as possible before breaking out into 5.1. And I do all that in Logic, the software called Logic Audio. And it's a very simple setup. Um, Logic Audio basically going out to six self-powered speakers, the two at the front, the two at the back, the one in the middle, and, and the sub, the, the low-frequency speaker. Uh, and that was basically set up in my little home studio. For, I have a proper studio now, but for years, because there's no money in it. No, they weren't paying a lot of money to do any of this. It, I'm not kidding when I say it was a labor of love. Um, and I, I was just having fun doing it. And, you know, and learning a lot, learning a lot by how those guys made those records. It was an education. Okay, so making a album in the old days, yes, there might even be multiple 24-track machines. Then you have 24-track, then you mix it down to two-track. So hmm. where in the process were your tapes coming from? Although they also send you the two-track, they send you the last version of the 24-track. What did you actually get? So I'm not interested in the, I'm not interested in the two track bounce down master. I'm interested in the raw multi track tapes. So the tapes where the guitar is isolated, the bass drum is isolated, the vocals are isolated, the backing vocals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there's no there's no usually no processing added. So things like reverbs, compression, EQ, uh, or any phaser of anything like that has to be reapplied to to the mix. Um, so I'm really much, I'm very much working from, from the very raw source recordings upwards. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is fascinating to me because prior to your work, I was a hundred percent against remixing the most egregious examples. Although he's a nice guy and a friend of mine, Giles Martin, what they've done with the Beatles, I just find horrific. Okay. It is change the music. And I'm very fearful that those will become the default products going forward. But when I first listened to your tall mixes, it sounded just like the original, just like with a lot of steel wool scrubbed off and you were closer. How could you do that without, did you just know the material without having the two tracks? How did you get so close to the finished product that had previously been released? Well, I mean, I do, obviously I do have the two tracks. I have the CD, I have the vinyl. So what I'm, what I'm doing, uh, so my work process is basically to load up the multi-track tapes and then alongside the multi-track tapes is to load up the original stereo mix. And then I'm literally on a pair of headphones listening in little five second 
chunks to the stereo mix, to the original stereo mix, and then my new mix. And then I'm hearing, ah, okay, they've pushed the lead guitar up a couple of dB there, so I'll do that. Now, my whole philosophy with this is the people that these mixes are aimed at, the people that these reissues are aimed at, whether it's part of a box set or it's part of a CD combo or it's a standalone Blu-ray, whatever it is, the people that are going to listen to these products and buy these products are people that probably have bought these albums at least three times before. They bought the original vinyl when it came out, they bought the first CD edition, and they probably bought the deluxe CD with the extra disc or the bonus tracks. Now you're expecting them to buy the deluxe $100 plus box set with a Blu-ray in it or a DVD in it with a 5.1 mix. So the point is that these people know the music probably better than the artist. And I say that advisedly because most of these artists haven't listened to their records for years. Right. I'm the same. I don't listen to my music. So Ian and, and Robert, for example, the two people we've talked about so far, King Crimson and Tull, they haven't listened to their records for years. And I find quite often I'm fighting them to not change the music. So Robert will come in and say, I never liked that bit, let's erase it. And I'm saying, you can't do that, Robert. You can't do that. Because the people that listen have been listening to this record for sometimes for 50 years or 40 years or 50 years, it's like a Bible to them. It's like a sacred text. So we can't change. And I've had these kind of fights with, with some of these. I mean, not fights, but it's a heated discussions with some of these guys. The worst was Greg Lake when I did an ELP album. Greg Lake coming in and saying, bless him, you know, rest in peace and all that. But coming in and saying, we always played that too fast. Can you slow it down? I said, well, I can, but I'm not going to. Because I think you're missing the point, you know, this, this was Tarkus, you know, I think you're missing the point, Greg, that this is not for you to, to, you know, fix things that you didn't like the way you played it 40 years ago. This is about creating a more immersive three-dimensional version that's essentially doesn't sound, in a way, doesn't sound different. But I can't remember what analogy you use, you use, Bob, the steel wool one. But I mean, I always use the analogy, it's like cleaning the Sistine Chapel. It's like just taking off a layer of grime off, off of the Michelangelo beneath, but you're not changing anything about the art itself. So I'm very committed to this idea of recreating that stereo. All of those mixed decisions that they made in 1969 or whenever it was, 1971, figuring out all of those mixed decisions and recreating them because fans don't want to hear it any other way. Um, there's kind of a there's kind of a contradiction at work here, which obviously the fact you're remixing in the first place, it's going to sound a bit different. But I think there's a way to do it that it doesn't jar. It doesn't sound like someone has tried to reimagine the music. And I'm very, very against that. Okay. Is it just technology? How do you achieve a clearer version than the original? A lot of it is technology. I would love to take the credit. You know, I'm doing some incredible act of necromancy to make it sound better. Not really. Um, it is the technology, working with digital files, not having to work with multiple generations of analog tape. I'll give you an example. Um, in the Court of the Crimson King was actually recorded on eight track, but it was done in the old fashioned way of they would record the band on eight tracks. They would bounce those eight tracks down to two tracks on a second eight track. Then they would fill up the other six tracks on that tape with Mellotron. They would then bounce that down to two tracks on a third tape and fill up the rest of the six tracks with a vocal. 
Now, you don't have to be Einstein to work out that that means that by that time, the drums, guitar, and bass that were on the original reel are third-generation analog tape copies with all the attendant hiss and degradation of sound that that entails. So when I get those tapes, I go back to the original source reels and I resynchronize all of what they call those slave reels. So I'm dealing for the very first time, the very first time anyone has been able to mix that album from first generation copies of the drums, bass and guitar. And that by definition gives you more clarity less tape hiss, less harmonic distortion. Now I say that with the caveat that some people like all that shit. And one of the complaints I have had, and I completely acknowledge it, is that some people don't like the fact that the music sounds clearer. That part of the the sort of sludge and, and crosstalk and tape hiss is all part of the experience for them. And all I would say is that what I do probably isn't for those people. And, you know, I think they're a minority anyway, but those purists, it's not for those people. But does that sort of explain to you, you know, how some of that clarity is is kind of coming back in in that respect? And, you know, being able to click, yeah. Yes. And and what about in terms of effects? You say you start with raw and then you add reverb, delay, whatever. Is the modern technology also help there? It, the modern technology is amazing. One of the things I hear a lot is that digital can't replicate analog. I think that was true for years I think it's becoming less and less and less true and it's becoming more and more redundant as an argument against. Digital technology is so good now. The plugins, what we call the plugins that we use, which are the kind of pro, you know equivalents of what used to be like old outboards, effects units, compressors, delays, reverbs. The plugins now are so good and the emulations of the vintage plugins specifically are phenomenal to the point that some of the guys that used to use them in the 60s and 70s can't tell the difference between the emulations now. But that's really been happening particularly in the last five, six years, they've just become, there's a company called Universal Audio that make plugins that are of such a high quality and they are emulations. So I'm using, you know, when I'm going and remixing Aqualung, for example, I'm using an emulation of the old EMT 140 reverb plug uh, chamber, which is exactly the same reverb that they used on Aqualung. It just happens to be a digital emulation of it, which is phenomenal. So that's been also kind of one of the things that's really helped me is these kind of emulations, modern digital emulations of all of the original analog outboard gear. Okay. Where do you stand on raw source? Forget remixing. Are you some, you know, there are people who cut on analog, transfer to digital. There are people who talk about digital. They talk about sampling rate, CD versus vinyl, analog versus digital. If we're starting from ground zero, where do you stand? Let's just say that all these days, everything I do, and I think everything, almost everyone I do in, in the digital domain is done at a very high resolution. So the days when we were working on digital at CD resolution, you know, 16-bit, 44.1. I mean, I'm now doing stuff at 96K, 24-bit, sometimes even 192K, 24-bit. The resolution is just off the scale. Um, So I don't think there's any compromise in terms of the quality of digital, but there is something missing from digital. And what it is missing is that it doesn't have a kind of signature sound the way analog does. Analog does have... Um, it, it, it imprints its personality and its signature on the music. And some people like that. 
I like that. You know, I like I like um, old records that were recorded in the sixties and seventies. Part of what I like about them is that kind of golden glow, that kind of gradual top end roll off that you get with analog. Um, it's a very sweet kind of roll off at the top end, and I don't understand these things. Is the truth? I'm kind of bluffing here a little bit. I don't understand this stuff. There are people that really do. But all I'll say is that I grew up in the age of digital recording. I started in the industry when digital recording was very young and it didn't sound very good. These days, it sounds fantastic. And you can cut analog from a digital, a digital recording, uh, 96K, 24-bit. It should sound amazing. It should sound amazing. Okay. I completely understand releasing vinyl records of things that were originally caught analog, cut analog. It never made any sense to me to have something that was recorded digitally transferred to vinyl. What is your take on that? Well, I think I understand completely where you're coming from, but I, th- I think the one thing you're discounting there is the whole romance and the kind of tactile experience of vinyl, aren't you? <laughs> so I think a lot of the time it's not about the the, the source audio. It's, it's, you know, a CD um, made from the same master as a vinyl. You're absolutely right. What's the point? What's the point when you can get a CD for five bucks and you have to pay 30 bucks for the vinyl and you've got all that surface noise and potential crackle involved too, you know, to contend with? I feel that way sometimes, but... I also like vinyl and I like to have certain things on vinyl because I love the ritual of vinyl. I love the kind of tactile, tangible experience of taking a record off the shelf, taking it out of the sleeve, putting it on the turntable. Honestly, I think a lot of it is that for people. And I also think a lot of people hear things that they want to hear. So when they listen to vinyl, oh, it sounds so much better than the digital files. I think what they're hearing is the kind of compromises that are inherent in vinyl. The fact you can't cut very high top end to vinyl. There is a natural roll off. So people hear that and they say, oh, it sounds so much warmer than the CD or the digital file. Well, yeah, it sounds warmer because they couldn't cut the treble to the vinyl. So there's a lot, I think there's a lot of that mythology that goes into vinyl. But I have to say, I love vinyl because I love the ritual of it. And I have a nostalgic attachment to it as obviously growing up with vinyl. Okay. Forget the rituals, purely talking about the sound. Is there any reason to take something that was cut digitally, transferred to vinyl such that you either have a comparable but different sound or a better sound? Or inherently, are you going to get a worse sound because of the compromises of vinyl itself? Okay, with the caveat that it does depend on what the source is. Okay, you know, if you've got a if you've got a source file that is at very high resolution, then it would make sense to cut it to vinyl. If it's a digital file that's at CD resolution already, in the sense that the artist recorded it at CD resolution, it's probably pointless. But even then, there is the caveat that you may have a fantastic vinyl cutting engineer who will get something out of the audio that the guy cutting the CD didn't get. But these are caveats. Basically, your question, the answer is no. (laughs) The answer is no. Just so I understand, you're saying it would be, you get a higher chance of getting good quality if you had a higher resolution digital recording? Yeah. If you've got a digital recording that's done at 9624-bit, putting that on a CD, you're naturally having to dither that down to 44.116. You're losing a lot of the information. A lot of the digital information is being thrown away. 
because CD has to be a lower resolution, lower bit rate. Going to vinyl, that's not true. You have a pure analog wave, which is a continuous thing. There's no information being thrown away. But if your digital file is already CD resolution, there is nothing to be gained by cutting it to vinyl. Does, does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Okay, so tell us how you got the tall gig. So it came from the King Crimson. You know, the King, it was, like I was saying to you earlier, one door led to another. The King Crimson series was very successful, very well received, very well reviewed. Next thing I know, I get a call from Tim Ch- Tim Chaxfield at EMI, as was then. Uh, this would have been 2011. We're doing Aqualung 40th anniversary. We'd like to get a 5.1 mix done. Would you like to do it? So that started me off on the whole toll catalog. Again, that Aqualung came out. It was extremely successful. Because it basically sounded the same as the original, but so much better. Uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing what a lot of people said about it. You know, I'm not, that's not what I think. That's what most people said about it. And again, I don't take credit for that. That album was originally mixed onto a faulty quarter-inch tape machine that was out of alignment. So every single version of the album that came out before we remixed it had been from a master that was was mixed onto a, a, a faulty machine. So it used to make me laugh when I used to see some of these people on forums saying, how dare Stephen Wilson remix this album? The original mix will never be bettered. When Ian himself said, we mixed that onto a machine that wasn't working properly. I've been waiting 40 years to fix it. <laughs> so we fixed it and it wasn't hard to fix it because the original session tapes 
sounded beautiful. It was the quarter inch master that was where the problems had come in. So we did a mix of that. It came out beautiful. It sounded much more alive and vibrant and three-dimensional, insert your own cliche. And it was very well succeed, uh, very well received. And I've gone on now and done, I think, something like 10 Tull records uh, now. We've, we've basically- Yeah, but also, in a, at what point did you shift from doing, in addition to 5.1, Two tracks. And how did that come down? That's a very good question. Um, yeah, we haven't touched on that, have we? So what happened was essentially I was hired to do the 5.1s, but my first, the first part of my process always was to recreate the stereo mix to the point that I could hardly tell the difference when I AB'd them. When I would go from the original mix to my new mix, the only thing I wanted to hear that was different was perhaps a little bit more clarity. I didn't want to hear any difference in the levels. I didn't want to hear any, any difference in the reverb treatments, the EQ, the compression, the stereo placement. I matched exactly to any moves, any rides in the volume, any moves in the stereo field, something panning from left to right. or I recreated everything meticulously because I wanted the 5.1 mix to reflect as closely as possible what the stereo mix that people had been, as, as, you know, as, as much as it's possible within the, within the surround field to reflect what was happening in the stereo mix. And basically, to cut a long story short again, while we were doing this, people like Robert and Ian and myself were listening to the stereo mix and saying, this sounds better than the original mix. We should include this in, in the package, you know, um, as a bonus um, for people. You know, we won't, we won't take the original mix out. We'll, we'll include the original mix too, which is almost always what happens. The original mix is included too. But let's throw in this new stereo mix too, because even though it was a byproduct of doing the 5.1, it, it does sound different. It sounds arguably better, clearer. Maybe a little bit of the analog magic has been compromised, but you know what? It's a different perspective. So that was the kind of mindset originally. Let's throw it in. Let's throw it in as a bonus. Um, and a lot of people started responding very, very well to the Stereo Remix 2, to the point that some of my jobs have been, like, for example, the Chicago uh, Chicago second album. I just got hired to do a Stereo Mix of that. It wasn't even a five-point. And the Sabbath albums I've just done, Stereo only. Not The, the record company didn't even ask me to do surround mixes. So that was kind of how that came about, yeah. Okay. Just in terms of process, what do you do after you make the stereo mix to make it 5.1? You know, in technical terms, on the workstation, I flip, uh, I just flip on each fader. I go from stereo out to surround out. And when you do that, your stereo pan pot becomes a surround pan pot. So instead of just something where you go from left to right, it becomes a little sort of diagram, which is like a, essentially like a little picture of your room. And it has a, a dot in each corner where each speaker is. And you just start to break things out into the room. So I might say to myself, you know, and I really approached it like an idiot because apart from those mixes I'd seen Elliot do, I hadn't listened to anyone else's mixes. And I just kind of did it like a bit of a, uh, you know, kind of intuitive way, like an idiot sort of, well, this might sound good and I let's try putting the backing vocals in the back. And, and if it sounded good to me, that's what I went with. And when the mixes came out, I started to realize I was doing it in a way that not many people had done it before. I was doing it quite aggressively. 
A lot of surround mixes had tended to be quite conservative in that they kept pretty much the whole stereo image in the front and they would just occasionally put a bit of reverb or a sound effect in the back speakers. And I didn't know this because I'd seen Elliot doing it and Elliot was quite aggressive with his surround mixing. But apparently he's one of the only, one of the exceptions too. And I was putting all sorts of things in the back, you know, and in the center speaker and moving things around the room and it just sounded good to me. This is fun, you know? So the, te- the answer to your question is, technically speaking, you just get presented with a little sort of pan, uh, a surround pan pot, which has a little dot where each of your speakers is. And you just move, using the mouse, you just move things where you want them to be in the surround field. It's easy. Okay. Obviously, there's been a learning curve and you're much better now. How long did it take you to do in the past? But more importantly, someone calls you today, I just want a two-track, and forget the preparatory, you know, baking it, you know, mm-hmm. that's not done in your studio. Once you get the files, how long from start to finish? Uh, well, that really depends. Like, for example, I'm doing a project now, which uh, unfortunately has to remain nameless, but it's it's a big American record from from the 90s that sold a lot of copies. And the tapes came to me and they recorded, some of the tracks were recorded on four 24-track tapes running in synchronization. So I'm loading up these sessions and it's just insane. There's like a hundred channels of information. And the thing is, the track sheets that come along, which are the track sheets being the original documentation that's like on the tape boxes, they're usually not very helpful because these guys that recorded these albums never really anticipated that someone like me 20 years later was going to have to figure out what's on these tapes ever again. So I'm literally then going through all of these tracks, listening and saying, ah, okay, that sounds like a backing vocal, label that as such. Ah, that sounds like it could be a, uh, you know, I don't know, a sitar or whatever it is. I'm listening through and I'm kind of labeling each of those tracks And this is before I've done any mixing at all. I'm literally just identifying what is on each track of the multi-track. And then I can start to have an idea about what sort of of time is involved. Uh, This project I'm doing right now, I've been working on since the beginning of the year off and on, you know, because I have got my other my other consideration of my record (laughs) coming out. But uh, and I've been promoting that. But I've been working on it on and off since the beginning of the year it's probably going to be the best part of four to six weeks by the time I've finished the surround mix of this particular album but then I've had other records where it's just recorded on eight track like when I did I think it was Benefit or Stand Up for Jethro Tull no this was the first album was recorded on four track so I had there was very little you know to sort of figure out and do with that um so that I mean obviously that was a much quicker process someone comes in with 24 tracks how long do you think it'll take It'd take me about a week. It'd take me about a week to recreate a stereo mix from a a well-recorded 24-track, 40-minute album. It'll take me about a week. And how do you establish a fee? I don't, I don't, I don't really care about the money. I mean, I, I'm in a very privileged position to be able to say that. I always say to the people that ask me, um, what have you got? It's fine. And the other, the other sort of consideration for me is I must genuinely like the album uh, and have some um, pre-knowledge of the album. I, m- I must know that, I mean, I'm not going to take on a record that I've never heard before. I don't know. I have no affinity with. And part of that is simply because I, you know, I, I do acknowledge to myself that the people I'm doing this for are the people that have bought the album 
over and over again and they're fans and I, I think I'd have to be able to do a good job. I have to be a fan too. So I have to genuinely be a fan of the record and at that point, I just say to the label or the management or the artist, whoever it is that's asked me, what have you got? What's comfortable for you budget-wise? And usually it's fine. I've never turned down a job that I wanted to do because of the money. And do you get an override of royalty on based no. on sales? No, I would never accept that. Never. It's not my work. It's not my work. It's not my creativity. I, even my mix, I'm kind of copying the original guy that mixed it. You know, I'm kind of recreating his mix in a way. So the only part of the process that I'm really being creative is is in breaking out into the room, you know, the, the surround field. No, I would never, I, on principle, I would never take a, a, an override or royalty. Okay, the final step is very important. It can change a record mastering. So how are these projects mastered? Wow, wow, you've you've hit on one of my favorite subjects there. Early on, these 5.1 mixes were being, and and the stereo mixes were being sent off to be mastered in very, they will remain nameless for some very reputable mastering rooms. And I'd sent the mixes off being really happy with the way they sounded. And they kept coming back and they sounded worse to me. And I, and I remember having conversations with some of the guys that had commissioned them from me. And I, and I would say to them, you thought the mixes sounded great, didn't you, to start with? And they'd say, yeah, they sounded amazing. Why are you having them mastered? Because they're coming back basically compressed with big sort of smiley EQs, which is what you would do with a new, you might arguably do that with a new record that you wanted to get on radio or you wanted to pop when it's on Spotify and a playlist. But the point is that these records we're doing are selling to the fans who are listening to them at home, generally on pretty good high fives. Why are we crushing the dynamics out of them? And this is one of my big bugbears, crushing dynamics. Um, so I actually managed to persuade almost in every, almost every case since, say, the early days, the first two or three years, these mixes get released bypassing the mastering stage completely. So the mixes come out of my studio, they go on the disc exactly as they are. And the, lo- the labels love that because they save $5,000 not <laughs> having to have it mastered, you know. Okay, let's be uh, talk about the very specific equipment because different equipment has different sound. First, hardware, what are you using for a computer? So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Mac user. I've been a Mac user ever since the beginning. Um, so I've just bought myself a love, one of the brand new towers, you know, very expensive, but for Dolby Atmos particularly, which is what I've now uh, transitioned to, which is the next step up from 5.1, which maybe you want to talk about that too. But anyway, uh, Dolby Atmos is, is obviously, as you can imagine, quite processor intensive. So I've got a very, very powerful... Uh, one okay, of those pa- machines you can buy for 5000 or $90,000. How much RAM did you put it? What did you do for chips? I spent about £10,000. Uh, so what's that, about $13,000? I forget exactly. I threw quite a lot of RAM at it, yeah, uh, because w- surround mixing is quite... Particularly this project I'm doing now, where I've got 100 channels of 9624 audio, and I'm breaking it out into Dolby Atmos. It's quite, it's quite CPU intensive and it's quite memory intensive. And what do you use? How many uh, screens and what screens? I just have one screen, but it's a big screen. <laughs> it's a big screen. I, I, can't do, I can't be doing with the two screens thing. So I, I have a big screen, one of those ones that kind of curves around you. It's like a wraparound thing. So I can see the whole mix all the time, basically. Okay. What headphones do you use? Um, 
I am using, hold on, I'll tell you, Audio, Audio Technica headphones, Audio Technica. And did you make a specific choice on those? And how expensive are those? Do you know what? They're not that expensive. They're not that expensive. I mean, they're good. They're good. Um, I did make a choice. They're, you know, they're like a 300 quid pair of headphones. I mean, you can spend 3,000. Yeah, on but a pair the question would become this is like the old days of mixing to Oratones or uh, exactly. Yamaha NS10. Uh, you know, you don't want to get too far from the average listener. So a lot of people use these Sony as a standard. How'd you discover these Audio Technicas? I can't remember. I probably just went to my local music equipment supplier and said, I, you know, I, pro I think I bought these headphones not for mixing on. I bought them for probably tracking with, you know. I wanted a good pair of headphones to work with when I was tracking vocals and stuff for my own stuff. And I just started mixing on them. I know how they sound. I understand what I'm hearing through them. And, of course, that's the most important, which is kind of what you're alluding to, you know. The point is, if you know what you're hearing, if you understand what your speakers or your headphones are giving you, that is a 100 times more important than having the fancy, you know, amazing expensive speakers or amazing expensive headphones and then what speakers do you use so for mixing in uh, stereo i use focals uh, a company i think they're an italian company called focal Fran french actually i know because i have them in my car i beg your pardon french company called focal yeah yeah so i have the i think they're called triads the triad stereo monitors and for the mixing in surround i use genelex uh, Jenny Lex speakers, self-powered speakers. And w why did you choose those specific brands? Because Elliot used them. <laughs> so I used, basically, my original 5.1 setup was based on his because his was the only one I'd seen. And he was using Genelec, so I just went out and bought myself five or six Genelec speakers. And now I have Dolby Atmos, so I have another seven or eight in the room. Um, but I've just stuck with them. Again, I understand what I'm hearing when I hear Genelec. I've, I've grown up, you know, hearing them. Okay, so for people who at this point still don't understand, explain Dolby Atmos. So Dolby, you know, I don't completely understand all of it myself because it's it's a much more complex thing than 5.1. 5.1 is very straightforward. You've got five speakers, you can put sound in any of the five speakers, and you've got the sub, which is the dot one, which is for the low end frequencies. Dolby Atmos is more complicated because it's 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 to do with it's more to do with object orientation, which means you can basically place a sound anywhere in the room. It will sound like it's coming from a particular spot in the room, in the air. I don't know how they do it, but they do. But the bottom line is that the, 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 the most standard configuration of Dolby Atmos, which is the one I've got, is 7.1.4, which means that you still have the five speakers you have in 5.1, the two in front, two behind, the one in the center, and the sub, but you have two additional speakers in the horizontal plane, which are at the sides. So they fill in between the front and the back pair. So you can discreetly put something that feels like it's coming specifically right from beside you rather than from behind you or in front of you. And the point four are two sets of speakers above you, two at the front, two behind you, which means you can now move sound not just in the horizontal plane, but also in the vertical plane. And it's incredible. And it does mean you can give the impression of, literally you can point something in the air and say that sound is coming from there and point at it. And that's the incredible thing about Atmos. It's, I mean, to say it's immersive is an understatement. It's the next level up from, from immersive. Okay, you know, Dolby always starts theatrically. How many people, you're mixing these records, you're mixing them for home use. How many people have these systems? I've no idea. 
Um, that's never really been a motivating fact for me. And I've always been of the philosophy that if there's, if there's catalog out there, it's more likely people will go out and buy systems. Now, when the Beatles are doing Dolby Atmos, that's a big help. That's a big help. I know you're not a fan of Giles's mixes necessarily, but the fact that he's done Dolby Atmos mixes, the Beatles have done Dolby Atmos mixes, probably has sent a lot of people out to look at the possibility of putting Dolby Atmos in their rooms. And I think that was always the problem. When I started, there wasn't catalogue like that out there. Um, and when you get people putting out albums like the Beatles catalogue in, in Atmos, then that's such a great kickstart to the whole industry. The other thing I think Atmos has got in its favour is that there, there are now, I don't, again, I don't understand the technology, but there are, uh, there are sound bars and there are headphones that are able to, they're able to decode Dolby Atmos mixes and give you a kind of pseudo, I think, I mean, I've heard it. It was amazing. I heard, I listened to one of my mixes on a pair of headphones and it wasn't completely discreet, but you know what? It was 70, 80% of it was there. I don't know how they do it, but that's, that's again, I think a big advantage it's going to have over the previous attempts at creating multi-channel sound in the domestic market. Tell me two albums that you've remixed that you're like the most or you're proudest of. Um, the what? Well, there's different criteria. Then there are some that I'm proud of because I feel we've made the most um, improvement in the sound, and Aqualung would be pretty near the top of the list, if not the top of the list. Because that was not, as, as I mentioned before to you, that had a problematic original mix down uh, phase. So being able to really clean that up and make it shine and sound like it had never sounded before, uh, I had immense amount of, proud, of pride of, of doing that. In terms of actual creatively, the, the most challenging, but probably the most rewarding, uh, Seeds of Love by Tears for Fears was uh, a nightmare to do. Uh, but it's one of my favorite records of all time. And the final result was incredibly rewarding. Just a beautifully recorded album with great playing, great songs, great performances, but an early generation of digital recording and another album that took three years to make was recorded multiple times in different studios with different lineups, different arrangements. And then the final versions of the songs would be one version of the song recorded in this year with this band stitched onto another version of the song done two years later in a different studio with a different engineer and a different band. I mean, it was just a nightmare to piece it together, but I'm very proud that I did and persevered and we got through to the other end and it sounds terrific okay that was an album that was recorded digitally from source yes yeah and what machine did they use did they do use the mitsubishi or do you know i think i think it was the mitsubishi yes and it was recorded at 48 48k which was you know that was all the digital machines were capable of then but you know what when digital is recorded well it can still sound amazing. I'll tell you another example. Skylarking by XTC, another album I remixed, which is a beautiful, you know, recorded by Todd, of course, uh, up in Woodstock. Um, and that was recorded, I think, uh, no, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong album. No, it's not that album. It's Oranges and Lemons, the follow-up to Skylarking, not the Todd one. Oranges and Lemons was recorded at 48K, 16-bit, which is like CD resolution. But you know what? It sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. And I think sometimes people forget that a great producer and a great engineer is a lot more important than the resolution of the recording. Um, those things are obviously, um, they are important. I'm not saying they're not, but 
the fact that that album sounds as good as it done when it was a relatively low, you know, in terms of digital terms, quite primitive uh, 48K 16-bit, sounds phenomenal. Let's talk about that Todd album. I discussed this with Todd himself. I find there's a signature kind of high-end compressed sound that his records have in the final mm. mix. Mm. Did you find his mixes like that different from other mixes? Did you have a take on that? Yeah, his mixes are quite eccentric in a in a in a, in a good way. Um, Andy, of course, wasn't particularly a fan of the original mix. Andy Partridge wasn't a fan of the original mix. Um, Todd's mixes are quite um, they're quite sort of murky um, in a nice way. Um, quite homogenized. There's not a lot of clarity and there's not a lot of detail. There is that kind of slightly muddy top end, uh, which I think is what you're kind of alluding to. There's very much a signature to the way the top end on his records sound, which doesn't, doesn't allow the instruments to really have clarity or separation. And I wonder if that's something he likes. He likes the fact that music, the, all the instruments, in a sense, combine into this kind of cohesive sound rather than sounding like different instruments in a in a mix if you if you if you see what i'm getting at so what we were doing with the remix was trying to get in into the mix and put some air around the different instruments which was definitely what andy wanted he i mean that's what he wanted at the time and he didn't get it so we were kind of trying to retro retroactively put some of that separation and clarity back into that album you know again one of my favorite albums of all time so that that was a that was a one of my favorite projects i've done yeah for sure but one would say at the end you ended up with a product that was somewhat different from the one the fans were uh, used to. In that case, we did. Yeah, I have no idea how he made it sound like he did. There is there are occasions where I simply, you know, for all for all my ambitions to try and replicate the stereo as closely as possible, there are times when I just cannot get close to it. I cannot figure out why it sounds the way it does. So in that sense, I just have to get as close. And it could be as simple as they were using some piece of outboard gear that was specially made for them. It was kind of, you know, a, a, a piece of equipment that had been made by some boffin that Todd knew that he was putting through all his mixes through and it did something weird to the mix and nobody quite knew what it was. I mean, there are all those stories about those things that come out of Abbey Road, you know, the special pericombobulator that they put all the tracks through that made it sound like an Abbey Road mix, you know. And all those things are very coveted by collectors of analog uh, outboard equipment. I don't know. So sometimes I cannot get close and I do feel like, you know, I just have to do the best I can. How'd you end up working with Chicago? That's the one act that sticks out in your uh, catalogue. So that was Steve. Do you know Steve Willard over at, uh, over at Rhino in LA? Steve no, Willard. I know the guys who started Rhino, but Steve, I do not know. Okay, so Steve, uh, Steve. Uh, is he the red hair? Wait, he's not the red-haired guy, is he? Do you know, I've only met him in person, I think, once, and it was a few years ago, because over in LA. He might well, not, be. Well, not really he, important. I'm thinking now, I think I do know him, but keep going. I think you might. He's a lovely guy. Anyway, uh, he asked me. He asked me. And that was a, that was a um, that was a slightly interesting project, because the band didn't really know who I was, and they weren't right kind of involved in the project, which is unusual for me, because usually one of my, I wouldn't say it's one of my stipulations, but it's certainly one of my 
requests, strong requests, is that I would like the band to be on board and approving everything. Um, and with Chicago, for whatever reason, Steve was like, no, no, the band aren't interested, but they're happy for me to, you know, to, you know, do it. And when it came out, the fans really liked it. And then there was a couple of comments from the band that were a bit snotty <laughs> about it. Oh, this kind of English geek's done this mix. We don't know. And then, um, you know, and then they, the next one, they got the, they got the Chicago Transit Authority, the first album, they got it done by their own guy. And I don't know what happened there, but obviously they, they decided after that they didn't want me to do anymore. But uh, no, it was, so that one was, you know, these projects can come from management, they can come from record label, and they can come from artists. In that case, it definitely came from, from Steve uh, at the record label. Yeah, he wanted me to do it, and, and I was very happy to do okay, it. Okay, traditionally, the act is not the engineer. Do you ever talk to the mixer or the engineer on some of these projects to find out where they were coming from, what they did? Very occasionally. Most of them, to be fair, are either dead or retired. <laughs> so I can't, you know, I can't talk to Eddie Offord about doing the yes mixes because he's retired. He's not interested. But I did speak to Hugh Padgham. I spoke about one of the XTC mixes I did. I spoke to Dave Bascom, who recorded Seeds of Love for Tears for Fears, for example. So, yeah, I've occasionally sort of sought, sought their kind of input, no doubt. Two dream projects you haven't yet done. Oh, wow. Um, Kate Bush has always been top of my list. Um, I just think her albums would be so perfect for Surround um, that it's frustrating to me. Not even that I would do it, but just that no one is doing it. But apparently she's she's not she's not interested. She's not... Um, I don't know if she's just not heard Surround or she has and she just didn't particularly care for it as an idea. So, yeah... Um, Kate, Kate would be, and and the Prince catalog, the Prince catalog. Um, Prince was my when I was growing up in the eighties. Prince was was my hero. He was the guy that I had posters on my wall, and to be able to get my hands on on uh, Parade or Purple Rain or any of those seminal eighties records would would be a dream. I mean, just to be able to go into his world. I mean, for me, the single most gifted musician the world of pop has ever produced. Uh, to be able to go into his world and deconstruct and reconstruct the music would just be mind-blowing for me to be able to do that. Okay, so this late date, are you a musician or a remixer, and how do you split up the time and to what degree are you frustrated by one or the other? Oh, I mean, my job is to make my own records, uh, and, I, and that, would al that is always my priority, uh, to make my own records. That's what, I, that's what I feel I was put on this earth to do, not to, not to tart up, other people's records, you know, the tarting up of the old other people. Sorry, is that an American? Do you have that expression in America? Tart no, up? no, we don't. I was just watching <laughs> okay. Tehran at Apple last <laughs> night, and you know they had someone using an expression they don't use in Iran, and everybody got freaked out. So it's kind of funny. It sounds bad, but I it's know not. what you're talking about. But they don't. There's certain things that don't mean such negative things in the UK. It's not rude. Don't worry. It's not rude. It just means to basically, you know, give give something a sort of clean, you know, clean it up a bit or make it look better than it deserves. To to or, or make it look as good as it deserves to in the case of these albums. So, um, I, you know, that's not my job. My job is not to, but it's become a, a sideline. And you know what? It's one I love to do. And, you know, I, I keep saying to myself, I'm going to try and, going to try and, you know, back off doing as much as I've been doing. But then people keep approaching me with these amazing albums. You know, I'm not going to say no to when, 
you know, if Prince or Kate Bush ever did come along, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say no when I get asked to do XTC Skylarking or songs from the big chair. Of course I'm not. Uh, so, it, and, and as I say, I think there's also an element that it is feeding back into what I do as an artist anyway. I've learned so much from, from, from being able to go inside this music. I mean, what better education could there be for someone who likes, who believes in sonic excellent, excellence and is fascinated with production um, and the techniques of the past and present? What better education could there be than to be able to go inside these classic records and actually have to figure out for yourself? Because nobody's, apart from those engineers that gave me a little help, they don't remember. They don't remember how they did. Th they don't remember a lot of the time how they got those sounds. So I have to figure it out for myself. And in doing so, those things become part of my own toolkit. So the answer to your question, Bob, is definitely, you know, my day job is, is doing what I do um, as, a, as a musician, as a songwriter. But I'm very, very happy to do this too. I, I know every year is different, but what percentage of your time is spent on your music as opposed to working on someone else's? I think it's like 80-20. I mean... As I say, these, if I get a well-recorded album recorded on 24 tracks, I can turn it around probably in a week without feeling like I'm rushing it. I can turn it around in a week. And I'm doing maybe seven, eight albums a year. So you can figure out from that that I'm maybe spending a couple of months a year working on the, the back catalogue remixing projects. The next question would be, where are you making your money? Are you making mo your money primarily from those projects, from going on the road? Music itself uh, doesn't generate as much revenue as it used to unless you're Drake. I think I've been quite fortunate. I, I, have, a, I have a substantial back catalogue. Uh, some would say there's too many records I've made, and I would be one of those people. I've made too many records over the years, but... Because I've made a lot of records and I have a very, very loyal fan base, which continues to grow, incrementally continues to grow, my back catalogue generates pretty good income for me. I, I'm never going to be, you know, multimillionaire or anything like that, but I don't want to be. I don't need to be. I'm very comfortable. I've managed to make a career by basically doing what the hell I want. And not many people can say that. Uh, and, I and I continue to make it continue to make a career by doing what the hell I want. Uh, musically speaking uh, and creatively speaking, I'm completely fulfilled. So my, I make enough money for my back catalog and I get paid a little bit to do these remix projects too. It's, it's, um, it, it's, um, it's not why I do them and it doesn't matter to me, but it's always appreciated when there is a budget from the label or the artist or whatever. You said you recently got married. Is this your first marriage? It is. And what was it the motivation is. at this late date to get married? I fell in love. I fell in love, Bob. Yeah. I fell in love. You know, I always thought that I wasn't the sort of person who would ever get married and have kids, but then I met my wife. Now, how'd you meet her? Well, I actually met her, um, I met her 20 years ago, although we only we, we really got together properly about four years ago. I originally met her 20 years ago. She's Israeli. She's from Israel. I met her 20 years ago when she was a very young, young lady. She was only 18 years old at the time. I met her backstage at a gig in Israel where she was working for the promoter. She wasn't a fan. She didn't know who I was, but um, we we kept in touch for many, many years. And about four years ago, um, and she in the meantime had two kids and I hadn't. So we, we got together about four years ago and the rest is history, as they say. So I'm now a stepfather as well as a, as well as a husband. 
Now, four years ago, was she still living in Israel or had she moved to the UK? No, she moved to the UK a long, long time, many years ago. In fact, her first marriage had also been in England. So um, we'd kind of been in touch all this time. Yeah. Well, it's always tough when you're an artist and you're living in your own head so much to balance home life and work life. And sometimes there are uh, significant others who accept less time and other people don't. So what's it like now that you're married? It's really been four years, you say. It's been two years. No, it's been 18 months since we got married uh, and kind of bought a house together. And most of that time, I haven't been on the road. In fact, all of that time. I haven't been on the road for, you know, during the last year for obvious reasons. But the last time I actually played a show was uh, towards the beginning of 2019. So, you know, I've been enjoying, I've, I've, since we moved into the new house, I've built my new studio. It's actually the first time I've really had a proper studio. I mean, every time, every, every studio I've had before that has really been whichever room I put my computer in and my guitars in. That's been quote unquote, the studio. And I actually, this time we bought a new house together. We built a, a proper studio, a, a proper room on the side of the house, proper acoustically treated. And it's the first time I've had a really special room. And of course it's all been made Dolby Atmos compatible, which is great to be able to do that. So I've been enjoying 18 months being home, being married, being with the kids, um, doing a lot of work in the studio um, and not having to worry about motivating myself to go out on the road. Although I'm beginning to miss that, obviously I am, and that's a big part of what I love to do. Well, are you the type of person who works strict hours or you get in a run and you might work till two in the morning or you stop for dinner at a specific time? I have a pretty good work ethic. I, you know, I, so the answer, is, the answer to your question is the latter. I do have a, a kind of time. I, I kind of go to the studio around midday and I, I will work till about seven or eight in the evening and then I'll stop to have dinner with my family. And then after that, I'll spend the evening with my wife, watching TV, watching a movie, listening to records. So the days of me, I used to, I think I used to do that thing of going through till two in the morning, but those days, you know, a lot of people say that, don't they? As they get older, I think they, they stop doing that, burning the midnight oil thing and, and getting to more of a, a routine. And I'm, I'm in that stage now. Let's go back to the new album. Mm. You have an incredible marketing plan with, and I, people can't see the air quotes here, merchandise. Tell us about the generation and the thought behind that. So the idea with the album was, I've always been fascinated by, by this idea. Part, you know, part of the, what we've been talking about during this conversation, this idea of trying to reconcile the idea of being a professional musician by also being completely true to yourself and having integrity, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. It's a very hard, you know, tightrope to walk. And it's always fascinating me this idea of music as commerce. How do you sell music? What is involved in selling music? How do you, how do you, if you're a creative person, how do you also get your brain to be involved in the commercial side of things? Selling yourself, schmoozing and all that stuff we talked about. And I've been fascinated by that. And one of the things I've been really interested about is how, what would it be like to sell a piece of music in the same way that Apple sell one of their products, for example? Um, and what would it be like to almost remind the listener relentlessly or the purchaser that they are involved in a financial transaction when they buy a record? So kind of riffing on that, I got together with the designer and we came up with this idea, why don't we parody the world of high concept, high design? This, these companies that buy a 50 cent t-shirt, put their logo on it and then charge $500 for it, like a company like Supreme, for example. And people love that. They love that. And what interests me about that is how it means 
that the purchasing of a lot of these items is no longer about the utility, it's about the ownership. It's about the status of owning the item rather than its utility. And I believe that applies very much to my world. You talk, we talk about these deluxe edition box sets that are coming out left, right and centre these days. This seems like barely a week goes past now when there's not 10 more deluxe edition box sets being announced. These are absolutely, I think, for most people about ownership rather than utility. Most of the contents of these box sets you will never listen to more than once. But it's nice to have them. It's fun to have them. It's fun to have the coffee table book. It's fun to have the CD of demos. It's fun to have the CD of the cleaned up board tape. It's fun to have the CD of the alternate mix where the only difference is the backing vocals a bit further over to the left-hand side of the stereo spectrum. Jimmy Page, I'm looking at you here with your Led Zeppelin Deluxe Editions. It's kind of fun to have those things. But actually, what you really need is the original album. That's all you really need. Maybe a 5.1 mix if you're into that thing too. So it's fascinating to me this world where things have moved towards ownership rather than use. And so we're kind of riffing off that with the with these kind of what I call high concept, high designer products. A can of air for two hundred dollars. By the way, it doesn't really exist. It's it's well that's uh, what I'm trying to say. You know, when you yeah, casual yeah. look would say it's sold out. But in addition, when you click on that, there's like a laptop bag. Everything is exorbitantly priced. And that's yeah. when you realize it's a joke. It's a conceptual joke, yeah. It's a conceptual gag. But, you know, but the point is that a lot these things are not completely ridiculous because there are. I mean, they are ridiculous. But what I mean is they're not ridiculous in the sense there are companies out there that really are marketing things that are not a million miles away from these things. You know, are paying a thousand bucks for a pair of sneakers uh, just because it's got a particular logo on it. This is the kind of world I'm talking about. And also the other thing that kind of span off from this was this idea of, of, of the sort of elitism of limited editions. So we did one edition of the album, which is a limited edition of one copy. And we put it on sale. And this, by the way, this is real. This is not something we was a gag. This was real. We created, myself and my designer created one, a one edition one sorry, one copy edition of one version of the album. That version of the album came in a big box, which had a seven-inch single with a song of which only one copy was pressed. It had a, it had my Grammy certificate and Grammy medal nomination. It had handwritten lyrics. Basically, it had a load of really exclusive stuff, of which there was only one thing, you know, one version of that. And we put it on sale for ten thousand pounds, with all the money going to the music venue trust. And it sold out within five minutes. Sold out within five minutes. And I love that because it play. It kind of also. It's also playing on the idea of music, selling music in the same way that art sells what it produces. So this idea that a painting or a sculpture is produced in an edition of one, and that one sells at a premium price. That's that's the what basis that the, the, the whole world of art is predicated on. You know, you create one original piece, you sell it for an exorbitant price. And then the person that buys it has the choice to either share it by putting it in an art gallery, or they can hang it over their front room, uh, hang it over their fireplace in the front room and no one ever else gets to see it. That's their prerogative. And I was fascinated by what would be the, and I, and I know I'm not the only person to do this. Wu-Tang Clang did a, an album of one, I think one copy a few years ago, which I think they sold for a million dollars. Uh, so I know this is not a completely original notion, but, but it all kind of was riffing on this idea of elitism and snobbery and the idea of ownership rather than utility. Okay. Uh, a lot of people might be listening to this 
primarily for your remixes. Obviously, we've talked about the new album, and you also said you have a lot of work. If you wanted them to further explore your work, where else should they look? I mean, in terms of your catalog. It's very hard to question to ask. I've done so many different kinds of records. So, I mean, without knowing what the the sort of agenda what the agenda of the person you know that you'd be asking on behalf of is in terms of what their tastes are i couldn't say i think the future bites is probably my favorite record of all the records i've ever made now i know i say that every time i make a record because i do say that every time i make a record but there's something special about this record to me because it sounds completely like me but it's completely a record of the now it sounds like a record that could only have been made now. It's a very contemporary sounding record. And I say that because I think a lot of my previous records have got more of a nostalgic element to them. If people are really into progressive rock, they'd probably like my album Hand Cannot Erase, for example. If people are really into metal, they'd probably like those early Porcupine Tree Lava Atlantic records like Fear of a Blank Planet and In Absentia. If people like more 80s pop stylings, they might like my record To The Bone. Uh, so... It's a hard question to answer without knowing the tastes of the person involved, but I would say definitely the current record, The Future Bites, is a real landmark record for me, and it's a very accessible but no less sophisticated because of it record, very melodic record. Okay, and since we live in this playlist world, one track where someone should start on the new album. Um, I really like, there's a song called Man of the People, which I think is a beauty. It was in my head, it was going to be Marvin Gaye collaborating with Pink Floyd. And I know that sounds, uh, uh, rather lofty aspirations to have for someone like me, uh, who can't really sing anywhere near like Marvin Gaye, but that was, it was kind of in my head. I had this idea. I wanted to do almost like this kind of soul ballad, but with the kind of production aesthetic of classic Floyd. And when you listen to it, that's kind of what it sounds like, I think. And I'm really proud of that song. Man of the People, it's a beautiful song. I would go with Personal Shopper, but that's okay. You're I love the person it too. Who you're the person who made the record. I, you know, I love the whole record. I'm so proud of everything. It's like trying to choose one of your, you know, your favorite child. I love them all. I love them. Personal Shopper's great too, yeah. And I've loved talking to, you know, it's funny until you actually connect with someone, you have no idea what they're like. I had no idea. As I say, you were so erudite and articulate. There are many people who are musicians who really can make it, but not really talk about it. And I can see why you have this podcast. And I would love to argue with you about some of these records. But I think we've come to the end of the feeling we've known for today. So, Stephen, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure. I had a lot of fun, Bob. It's great to talk about a lot of stuff that I don't normally get to talk about because I've been. I'm on the interview interview treadmill right now for the future bites, and ninety percent of the questions are always the same. So it's been great to have some different things to talk about. Thank you for that. It was great. I'll leave it at that. Till next time. This is Bob Lefset. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. 
If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.